On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I dot com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Felix Poon. So there's this small remote island out in the South Pacific. And on this island was a man who goes by Matahu. My name is Sergio Matahu Rapu. I'm a documentary filmmaker from Rapa Nui. Before he was a filmmaker, Matao used to be a tour guide on Rapa Nui. You can't escape tourism. You know, it like surrounds you. You're either transporting tourists or feeding them or guiding them or, you know, cleaning their rooms. One day, Matao is hired by a private tourist from Russia. He's driving him in his van around the island and telling him stories about different sites. And we stopped at this one site, and he kept sort of prodding me about, like, how, how were they moved? Rapanui is the indigenous name for a place that you've probably already heard of called Easter Island, a name that Europeans came up with when they first landed there 300 years ago on Easter Sunday, 1722. And the tourist, he was talking about those massive statues that the island is famous for. They're carved from volcanic rock. They look stoic, with square chiseled jaws, prominent noses, and unsmiling lips. They're said to represent Rapa Nui ancestors. And there's nearly a thousand of them on the island. Most are lined up along the ocean, where they stand facing inward. They're called moai, and the heaviest moai weighs 86 tons about two fully loaded tractor trailers. Imagine moving tractor trailers, but without wheels. So back to Matau. 
who's guiding this Russian tourist around the islands. And the tourist asks him, how were they moved? And so, you know, I'd kind of talk to him about some theories. And he's like, well, how do you know, like, it wasn't aliens? And this was kind of like the first time that somebody actually, like, challenged me in saying, what is your evidence that extraterrestrials didn't carve this and it actually wasn't your culture that moved it or carved it yeah like, and, and then what, what do you what do you say well i mean like i i walked him over to one of the statues and i'm like look like here is evidence and actually pointed out to sort of places on the stone where it has eroded and, and other things that support theories around statue transportation um upright right by people mm-hmm. right uh, and by my people it, it, in particular. Matao has been dealing with questions like these for most of his life. That's because who moved the statues and how they did it has been the subject of a lot of debate and speculation since Europeans first came to Rapa Nui 300 years ago in 1722. All of the first Europeans gave written accounts of a relatively impoverished island with practically more statues than there were people They didn't believe such a small group of native islanders, with no modern tools, living on a mostly treeless island, could have possibly carved and moved the statues. They thought that a great civilization must have been here before, but something must have happened to them before the Europeans arrived. What exactly happened was a mystery. There is no voice to tell who carved the giants and why hundreds of them were destroyed in the Easter Island Massacre. Could it be that this remote civilization ultimately destroyed itself over the moving and raising of their sacred Moai? But island legend speaks of a terrible conflict between the clans a few decades before the Europeans arrived. These films are actually based on academic theories. And the most accepted theory was that the Rapa Nui people carved and moved the Moai at the expense of their own civilization. In his 2005 nonfiction book, Collapse, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jared Diamond theorized that rival chiefdoms on Rapa Nui competed to make bigger and bigger Moai. They commanded armies of laborers to cut down trees for making these contraptions for moving Moai. According to Diamond, all this statue-making and transporting gets so out of hand that the island gets completely deforested. Diamond even imagines the person who cut down the very last tree. They supposedly knew it was the last tree, but they cut it down anyway. The result, according to Diamond, was, quote, starvation, a population crash, and a descent into cannibalism. During many years, many archaeologists say, no, the Rapa Nui just destroyed all the island, cut all of the tree for transporting the Moai. This is Gina Pakarati, who's from Rapa Nui and has been a tour guide on the island for the past 20 years. And Gina's not happy with the self-inflicted collapse version of history. It's told me like, no, that one is not true. Uh, I feel like, uh, wow. Yeah, sometimes I'm angry with that. Like, okay. If I am Rabanui, why I want to destroy whole my island? Why I want to destroy everything just to, for transporting the statue? Gina says that her ancestors didn't need to cut down any trees to transport the Moai. In fact, the oral history of Rapanui has always been clear about how the Moai were transported. 
question is, why hasn't anyone been listening? Why are all these non-Rapa Nui people telling stories about my island? And why am I not telling stories about my island? But all of these different hypotheses actually tell you one thing, still a mystery. We relive our history. No, we don't need the people from outside because we know it's true. This is a story about storytelling. What happens when your community becomes the subject of a global mystery, a parable of human failure and ecological collapse? What's the true story? Who gets to tell it? Who's taken seriously and who isn't? We're going to talk about how the Moai were transported in the second half of this episode, because before we talk about that, we need to understand what happened on Rapa Nui leading up to the moment that statue making stopped. We need to understand Rapa Nui history. And to tell this part of the story, I'm going to introduce you to two archaeologists, Carl Lippo. Okay, it's recording. Oh, perfect. Can I hear you? Okay, and I can hear you. Yeah. Okay, good. And Terry Hunt. And we are recording. I'm recording on the phone. And we're going to go to where it all began on the island, Anakena Beach. So Anakena Beach is a, a small um, crescent-shaped bay with a white sand beach. It's a beautiful setting, uh, sort of turquoise water. It would have been lined probably with giant palms. In 2003, Terry and Carl are on Rapa Nui, along with a bunch of their students. They're digging for the earliest human artifacts on Anakena Beach. We reached the very bottom where there was a hard-packed clay underlying the sand. And in the clay were the, the root molds from the palm trees, undisturbed. So you know that that's an undisturbed deposit. And in the top of it is evidence of humans. We were right at the bottom that looked like the surface that on which people must have walked. That is the moment, the geologic moment, when humans met the sediments of that island. According to the oral history that Gina told me, the Rapa Nui tour guide, the moment humans first met the sediments of the island was when legendary King Hotu Matua and about a hundred settlers had just traveled thousands of miles on double-hulled canoes. Essentially, two large canoes connected together by a plank in the middle. They would have used the sophisticated Polynesian navigation techniques, like looking toward the dawn, the birds, and the stars in the sky to guide them. Finally, after weeks of sailing in the middle of the vast Pacific Ocean, they landed there on Anakena Beach. This was the moment in historical time that Terry and Carl wanted to identify with radiocarbon dating. So we're like, okay, this is the very bottom, the earliest deposits. You get artifacts, you get charcoal. Carbonized little twigs. You get rat bone, uh, flaked obsidian. And I said to my students there during the excavation, I said, this 
will date the arrival of people on this island. And so Terry and Carl send these off to the lab. You know, we're going to get a really early date. I thought that would be about six, seven, eight hundred A.D. 600 to 800 A.D., because those were the earliest dates that the latest archaeological research was saying at this time. An early date like that was important for the collapse theory because the population supposedly needed enough time to grow big enough to transport all those statues. A few weeks later, Terry and Carl get an email. We get this email from the radiocarbon date, and we got a date of um, the 13th century, sort of mid-13th century. More than 400 years later than what they expected. Was it a fluke? And then we got another date of mid-13th century, and another one. It wasn't a fluke. And another one. We were like, wait a second, how can this be? And I thought, oh no, there's something wrong with this. They sat on the results for a couple weeks. Terry says he didn't even want to think about it. But then he got an invoice in the mail for the radiocarbon dating. These crazy radiocarbon dates that I don't believe, and now I have to pay for them out of my small budget. And so he reached out to a colleague. My senior colleague, Ethel Anderson in New Zealand, has been uh, a mentor to me and someone who I really trust. And I, I emailed Ethel and I said, what do you think of these radiocarbon dates? I'm, I'm sure of the context. And the dates are, are, are they're good dates. That everything from the lab is fine. The, right, the material's right, everything. I said, but how could it be so recent? And Ethel wrote back to me something which is, you know, quotable for the rest of my, you know, always remember this. He said, um, trust the evidence over your preconceptions. Mm. I think it began to make us question everything. Because if the chronology was wrong in the um, conventional narrative, what else was wrong? Terry and Carl look at the major assertions that have been made about Rapa Nui history. They find different explanations for all of them. The narrative thread of Rapa Nui history unraveled before their eyes. The original chronology was the first point to unravel. The second point to unravel was the population. It was theorized that the island had once reached a population of 20 to 30,000 people at its peak of statue making in the 1600s. In fact, Jared Diamond's popular collapse theory depended on the idea of a large population. But with the new arrival date of 1200 AD, Carl says that would have been an astoundingly fast growth rate. And then about 90% of that population would have had to rapidly die or disappear just before the first European ship arrived. Here's Carl. Maybe it happened really quickly. Populations just exploded really fast. But we were like, well, if that is the case, then let's see the evidence of that. Let's see if we can figure out, you know, where are all these people living? Uh, how are they distributed in the landscape? Where are these uh, battlefield events? What's the evidence of, of lethal warfare? Uh, and everything we looked at, it's like, wait a second, there's none of this. You know, we don't see the evidence that you would expect to see um, that would support that argument. The third point to unravel was deforestation. Jared Diamond's theory of collapse was that the island was deforested in a sort of reckless adventure of transporting statues on rolling logs. Terry and Carl say that this theory is easily debunked. First, because the trees on Rapa Nui wouldn't have been very good for transporting statues to begin with. 
They're mostly palm trees, which are technically not even trees. They're grasses. They have a mushy interior and a hard outer shell. They probably would have simply been crushed with the weight of a moai if you put one on there. And then second, while Rapa Nui people did cut and burn trees to enrich the soil for agriculture, Terry and Carl say that the primary culprit for deforestation was the Pacific rat. The tree rat, uh, Ratus excellent. Which came to the islands along with the first Rapa Nui settlers. And they spelled disaster for the palm trees on the islands because they eat the nuts, which haven't evolved to withstand the rats. And rats breed like there's no tomorrow. A breeding couple can have up to a few million in just a few years. So this is really an invasion. And we see deforestation over about 500 years of occupation on the island. So deforestation did happen. But according to Carl and Terry, it was more likely because of rats and agriculture than it was because of statue making and transport. So all of these points in the conventional collapse narrative unraveled. The arrival of Rapa Nui settlers was later by hundreds of years. The population didn't grow as big as the collapse narrative claimed. And deforestation wasn't because of a reckless obsession with statues. Which all leads us to the final point to unravel. The mystery of why statue making stopped. And the reason why statue making stopped is arguably one of the darkest chapters of Rapa Nui history. People were carving statues and looked up and saw uh, white sails on the horizon. And the profound changes that would come with that visit could be the end of statue making. In 1774, British explorer James Cook and his crew were on an expedition exploring the Pacific Ocean. According to their accounts, when they arrived on Rapa Nui, they saw what they called a destitute and impoverished place, noting a small population of no more than 900 people, and even human bones on the surface. This account is one of several that built up this whole collapse narrative. But James Cook wasn't the first European to have stopped at Rapa Nui. What they're witnessing is the aftermath of the Spanish visit four years earlier. And the aftermath of a European visit at that time would have been epidemic disease. Smallpox. And so you probably had an epidemic disease sweep through the population, uh, leaving some significant percentage of the population dead, uh, not even having time to, to take care of burial, etc. The population bounced back some, but in the 1800s, whalers and slave raiders began kidnapping Rapa Nui people into slavery. Dozens at first, and then hundreds. And then the worst of the raids happened in 1862 and 1863, when as many as 1,400 people were kidnapped by Peruvian and Spanish slave raiders. All told, as much as half of the island's population was abducted in the 1800s. They're taking them into this uh, labor to uh, plantations in the Central Pacific and also um, to South America. 
Most are forced to work in guano mines in Peru, which is really brutal work. About 90% of them die from disease and dysentery. Finally, under pressure from the Catholic Church, Peru agrees to repatriate the Rapa Nui. About a hundred are shipped back to the island, but only a handful of them survive the trip. The ones that do make it back brought back another smallpox epidemic with them. Which leads to even more death and terribleness. Um, you know, it's catastrophic, absolutely catastrophic. By 1877, only 111 people are left living on Rapa Nui. The island is annexed by Chile in 1888, and the entire island is converted into a sheep ranch where the remaining survivors are forced to work for no pay. And they're confined to living in a walled-off part of the islands. They can't leave. This is the collapse. If you want to collapse on Rapa Nui, it is a demographic um, disease and slave-trading-induced collapse that was misinterpreted from the early days of where were all the people? Um, well, they're dying of disease that you introduced that you're not aware of. And then there are people being taken away in slave trading during the 1800s. And, you know, this you can see how the story forms as a complete misinterpretation. What was it like to have half of your community kidnapped and enslaved? To have your community decimated by disease? and for the survivors to become imprisoned laborers on their own islands. And then after all that, to hear the world blame you for your people's tragedies. Thankfully, this isn't where the story ends. And the people of Rapa Nui are more than the tragedies of their past. The Moai and the ingenuity with which the ancestors of Rapa Nui moved them are a great pride of the island. The oral history that tells of how they were moved survived colonialism, and it's been passed down from generation to generation of Rapa Nui people. That story is that the Moai walked. How did they walk? That's after the break. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Felix Poon, and in the second half of this episode, we're talking about the Moai, those famed enigmatic statues of Rapa Nui, or Easter Island, as it was named by the Dutch, who first arrived 300 years ago on Easter Sunday, 1722, and named it Easter Island. There have been lots of theories about how the Moai were moved, but if Rapa Nui people didn't use trees, as we talked about in the first half of the episode, how did they do it? Terry Hunt and Carl Lippo didn't want to wade into this debate at all when they were doing their research on Rapa Nui. So much had been written on the topic, and they didn't think they'd be able to contribute anything new. But one day on the islands, they saw a sign in Spanish. El Camino de los Moai. And in Rapa Nui. Tierra o te Moai. Meaning the road of the Moai. And the more that Terry and Carl and their students surveyed the island, the more of these roads they came across. Here's Carl Lippo. And we thought, hey, that the evidence about those roadways is telling us something directly about transport because those are the paths across which they are moved. We know that. Most of the statues on Rapa Nui are placed on these big display platforms lining the coast. But before they ever got there, they were carved in quarries several miles away. There are others along a network of roads that never made it to the coast. Carl and Terry realized that the statues on the roads were different from the statues on the display platforms. For example, the statues that we saw on the roadways always had this amazingly forward lean. The forward lean is so much that the statues can't even stand up on their own. And the road moai also have lower centers of gravity and a rounded front edge, which is to say that the statues are carved in such a way that makes it easy for them, if you rock them back and forth, for them to take a step. Rocked back and forth. Kind of like rocking a heavy refrigerator or a washer and dryer, but in this case, one that's actually designed to be moved in that way. Then there were the roads themselves. The roads are actually concave, so they're lower in the center than the side. Which wouldn't make sense if you were trying to use logs as rollers, because the logs wouldn't roll very well on a concave surface. So the design of the Moai the shape of the roads, and a whole host of evidence that Terry and Carl gather all suggest a particular conclusion. That the best explanation uh, was really about the fact they were moved standing up. That, that was sort of the impetus of our book, and we started putting all the archaeological evidence about the, the argument that statues walked. Uh, and it's not, an, it's not a new idea. It wasn't like we were the first ones to come up with it. But we, we want to say, look, archaeologically speaking, this is the best explanation. Terry and Carl published their research in a book called The Statues That Walked. And then after their book was published, National Geographic wanted us to create a replica of a statue and show, prove it to the world that you could actually walk it. National Geographic worked with Terry and Carl to produce a documentary about the Moai walking theory. But they weren't so sure about being in charge of walking a Moai. We initially said, no, that's really crazy. 
um, read the book. What do we know about tying the ropes and doing stuff, moving this giant multi-ton thing? If we are not able to move the Moai, it doesn't mean that we're wrong. It just means we don't know how to move it. We can explain it sort of like a flight engineer knows how a plane flies, but you don't necessarily want the flight engineer to fly the plane. And they said, no, we need something that's exciting for TV. But what convinced them in the end was the difference that they could make to change the narrative about Rapanui. Carl says that if they didn't participate, then we'd be left with wild theories about aliens making and moving Moai and things like that. So they said, okay, let's try it. The oral history says the statues walked. And Hunt and Lippo are trying to figure out whether it's true. We're going to want it lower, the, the ropes lower. On yeah, the yeah, okay, because okay. We have no leverage up there. According to the documentary, this is the most precise replica of a Moai ever created. And when it's delivered to the filming location, Terry and Carl have just two days to try and move it. I want you guys to spread out a little more so that you're holding it. But On the first day, they've got two ropes tied to the Moai, one on each side with teams pulling in an alternating rhythm. But it doesn't do anything but sway the statue back and forth doesn't walk. As they reach the end of the day, Hunt and Lippo have to face the reality that so far, the experiment has failed. Unless they can get back on track, their failure will cast doubt on the statue-moving theory and on their other ideas about what happened to the island's once robust and productive people. And then it's 4 p.m. on the second day. They've only got one hour left to figure it out. So they make one final adjustment, which is to have a third rope with a team of volunteers holding the Moai upright from behind it and two teams pulling from the left and the right sides. They're ready to try one last time. Least attention. How you guys doing? Good? Okay. Ready? Set. E. The Moai walks. Terry captured about 30 seconds of this on video on his smartphone. And later that night, he showed it to a Rapanui friend. She watched it about 10 times in absolute amazement, seeing this five-ton statue walk. And then she put her hands down to her waist, like the hands of a, uh, of a Moai. She began to rock back and forth, like a statue walking. And she began to sing a song. And I said, what's the song? And she said, it's the Moai walking song. And I said, you have a song? She said, of course, we, we all learn the song when we're kids. In fact, Terry gave a lecture to about 300 Rapanui people. And then he showed them the video. I put the video up of the statue walking and the entire audience started to sing the song. It was, it was one of the most moving uh, experiences for an archaeologist because archaeology and tradition 
came alive in contemporary culture. It was just it was just amazing. Wow. If if you wanted to hear the um the song, I can play it right now. Okay, just to get sure. an idea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let me uh, move this a little bit. Here's the song. Yeah, I really love to show that video to my guests because it's easy. This is Gina Pacarati, the tour guide we spoke to at the beginning of the episode. Before this video of the walking statue existed, tourists would come to Rapa Nui and expect to be told the collapse narrative of the island. It was hard to cut through those preconceptions. Sometimes when you explain just to the guests, and sometimes the guests don't really understand, but when you show them the video with that music, with, with that song, everything is changed. It pains me a little bit, you know, to be honest, to when people refer to the statue walking theory uh, as being the Lippo and Hunt theory, and there's no mention of my dad. This is Matahu, who you'll remember from the beginning of the episode, he's the former tour guide turned film producer. Turns out Matau's dad, Sergio Rapuhawa, is a pretty big deal on the island. He owns and runs a number of businesses there. But more notably, he was the first Rapa Nui governor of the island from 1984 to 1990, as well as the first Rapa Nui archaeologist. And Sergio's done extensive research on the Moai, including how they were transported. And he worked together with Carl and Terry. Carl Lippo and uh, Terry Hunt, they brought a lot to the island. They have, um, you know, brought a lot of science and and technology and things that we didn't have there. Um, But also uh, they, um, how do I say this? They, um, they they also depended heavily uh on on work that my dad had done um to formulate um essentially the same theory that that my dad had had developed and had also uh practiced a lot yeah. on the island you know the the difference between them and my dad is that they are PhD American professors. Mm. My dad at, at the time um, had a master's, right? And so in, in the academic world, you look at this and, and you see my dad as an informant, right? And, and, and these two gentlemen as the, the real scientists, right? Sergio wasn't the first to say that the statues were moved upright, but he was the first to theorize the actual technique of rocking them back and forth. And he was the first to discover the evidence that supports that theory 
So why then are Terry and Carl the ones who changed the narrative? Why wasn't it Sergio? I decided to talk to Sergio himself. Sergio was actually really hard to get in touch with. I tried emailing him and texting him, but long story short, I finally just decided to cold call him. Hello? Hello, is this uh, Sergio Rapuhawa? Yes. Hi, Sergio. This is uh, Felix Poon. I'm I thought we were going to schedule a Zoom call that works for Sergio's schedule. But when I told him that I wanted to interview him about Rapanoi history and how the Moai were transported, he just started talking. Then I looked to the audience. I said, have you heard of Rapamycin? A little off topic at first. Medicine. And the name Rapa came from Rapanui, Easter Island. But with a lot of pride for his island. It's such a remote and a little ecosystem from where it can find the solution to our humanity problem. Soon enough, he starts talking about the Moai and says how they were moved is one of the most important contributions of Rapanoi people to humanity. What was the resource of those people to move such a public work, building and building, moving and moving, start to thousands of them? And so I settled into learning about Sergio Rapuhawa, not just about his research, but also about his life. Sergio was born on Rapa Nui in 1949, and then went on to high school in Chile, since there were no high schools on Rapa Nui at the time. After high school, Sergio became a teacher and took some anthropology and museology courses at the University of Chile. And then when he was back in Rapa Nui, Sergio met an American archaeologist named Bill Malloy, who took him under his wing and got him a scholarship to go to college in the U.S. So Sergio goes to the U.S. in 1973, studies at the University of Wyoming. So it was a fascinating experience for a Polynesian yeah. from a hot island, you know, with the cowboys walking on the snow, castrating <laughs> cow or oh, bulls oh and roasting that, uh, eating there instead of fish. What experience! I mean, it's fascinating. Bill Malloy became a close mentor to Sergio. They talked about how the Moai were moved. Malloy's theory was a bipod system, where you have two trunks of trees that are kind of like crutches swinging the Moai forward. Sergio didn't say anything to Malloy at the time, but he knew his theory wasn't right. And he knew that none of the other theories were right either. Like the one where they use sweet potatoes like engine grease to slide the Moai along the ground. Poor guy, can you imagine when a, a half pound of sweet potato is the mean to your survival? You are going to waste that in ton? <laughs> I mean, crazy. Or the theory where they stand the Moai upright on a sled and slide it on rolling logs. The theory that they were transported on a barge in the ocean. And of course, the aliens theory. But all of these different hypotheses actually tell you one thing. Still a mystery. They have no solution. Sergio wanted to find the solution. So after he graduated from college, he got his master's degree in archaeology. And when he was back in Rapa Nui, 
he got a grant from the Chilean government to research the Moai and to restore them, since they were mostly toppled over and damaged. So I started setting up my team of 35 people, mm-hmm. photographer, topographers, uh, second archaeologist, third student, blah, blah, mm-hmm. laboratory rapidly. And we started 13, 14 months digging continuously. And there started all kind of discovery. Before working on the Moai transport question, Sergio made a discovery at Hanakena Beach. He and his team excavated pieces of white coral, and he brought the pieces back to his lab. And he noticed that they fit together, kind of like a puzzle. And as he assembled them, they began forming into these flat almond shapes, each with a hole in the middle. That's when Sergio had a thought. My gosh. I got on my truck and dashed back to the place, back to the broken face of the statues laying on the ground. He put them right into the eye sockets of the face. They fit perfectly. And I laughed. I said, hey, guys, you have wakened up our ancestor. Don't you see it? (laughs) The discovery of the eyes of the Moai was a big deal for Sergio's team and to the whole island. They gathered hundreds of people in town, and they celebrated. Did you did you publish anything in in like articles, journals, uh, books, or anything like that about this? No, 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 no. Sergio was approached with book writing deals. The ego would say, "Oh, Sergio, sign it, sign it." But he turned them down. Sergio says he wanted to keep doing the work because there was still so much to learn before he could put out a book. When Sergio started focusing his attention on how the Moai were moved, he took the same approach. Very thorough, very systematic, not rushing to publish. And by 1982, which is 40 years ago now, Sergio had 14 different points demonstrating why the walking theory is the best theory based on the archaeological record. But even now, 40 years later, when I asked Sergio to tell me about the 14 different points, he declines. I don't give you the detail because every time I talk, somebody else run ahead and publish it. They took it just like that. And they went and published it and added their own thing. But anyway. Who, who, who did that? No, this one, talk about that. I may, I may get a, a, a new debate and we don't have time for that. Okay. <laughs> Leave it there because uh, if they keep adding to the knowledge, I will applause, you know. Yeah. The important thing is uh, they, can, they can say, oh, so-and-so told me this. Oh, that's fine. That, uh, that's enough credit. <laughs> yeah. Can I, can I ask, are you, are you referring to Terry Hunt and Carl Lippo? You're right. <laughs> yeah. You, you worked with yeah. them, right? You worked together with them? Yeah. All, uh, the same way with this freedom, uh, I'm telling you, uh, I told them we have a bottle of wine and we work together and so on. Uh, in other words, I was such a, a nice native boy that tells story, and they, the scientists, did the right things. Now, to be fair, as much as Terry and Carl relied on Sergio for the Moai walking theory, 
The vast majority of their book, The Statues That Walked, is not about Moai transport. It even includes stuff on Rapanui history that Sergio doesn't even agree with. All this to say, Terry and Carl's book is their own work. And where they talk about the Moai walking theory, they mention Sergio as a source. So they didn't steal Sergio's research and pass it off as their own. They didn't really run off with Sergio's theory. In fact, when it comes down to it, there's one authoritative paper that was published about the Moai walking theory. It was published in 2013 in the Journal of Archaeological Science. And Sergio is named as a co-author on that with Terry and Carl. Here's Terry. We included Sergio in that because he was so um, central in us recognizing the things we needed to look at. And Carl. It was important for us to have him as recognized as a, as a collaborator and, and you know, leader in that, in that endeavor. But still, somehow Sergio, who's the original Rapa Nui archaeologist, who first discovered the evidence for the Moai walking theory, he's not the main authority on the statues, at least not in the English-speaking world. If you go online and search how Easter Island statues were moved, you're hard-pressed to find any mention of Sergio. Instead, you'll see Terry and Carl in the spotlight as the authorities on Rapa Nui history and Moai transport. But shouldn't it be the original Rapa Nui archaeologist, not to mention the former governor of the island? Shouldn't he be the one in the spotlight, instead of two non-Rapa Nui American archaeologists? Shouldn't Sergio get more credit? I put this question to Carl. Carl agrees that Sergio doesn't get enough credit for the work he's done. He says one reason for this is Sergio's lack of academic publications. He only has a handful of publications, according to ResearchGate.net, compared to Terry and Carl's hundreds of publications and thousands of citations. But another reason that Carl blames for Sergio not getting as much credit is the National Geographic documentary. I mean, we fought tooth and nail in the sense of creating this drama of outsider experts coming in to explain things that are mysterious. But the NOVA production... The documentary was a co-production with NOVA on PBS. Ended up editing it in such a way to make it look like the kind of documentary you typically see where there is this, you know, it's usually a British person, you know, who comes in with <laughs> a very smart, you know, right. uh, accent to, to right, explain like to the, the David world. At, David Attenborough style. Yeah, the, the, it's the classic, <laughs> you know, white, old white guy from, from far coming to bring their expertise about you know, the brown people of some place mm. in, in the natural world. And it, it turned into that, but that wasn't where we started and it wasn't the conversation, nor was it the filming that we actually did on the island. Mm. Terry and I, when we did the actual filming, we spent an immense amount of time talking about the role of the islanders, the role of Sergio Rapu, the history and where these ideas come from. We repeated those comments over and over and over again in every single you know, take that we did. Uh, I mean, that must have been hundreds of hours of video. But in the end, it gets edited by what they, what TV producers at Nova wanted viewers to see fitting the format of that model. In fact, according to Carl, he and Terry both wanted Sergio to be there when they walked the replica. But the Nova producers said no. The Nova producers wanted to film the walking replica in Hawaii. 
But according to Carl, the producer said there wasn't enough money to fly Sergio to Hawaii. And so Sergio is in the documentary, but he's not presented as the pioneering researcher that he is. The fact that he was the first one to theorize how the Moai walked way back in 1982 is barely mentioned. I reached out to the producers of the Nova documentary, but never heard back from them. I asked Sergio why he thinks he doesn't get credited as much as he should. And his answer kind of bucked the premise of my question. I mean, uh, in the history of humanity, there are many, many things. Maybe Darwin was not the one that really talked more of evolution than uh, others. Maybe there was one before him. Yeah. And But published, it was done by whatever extensively Darwin. But it's, that's a common, and I see that it's real. And I think the tourists, they don't have a right to learn about Sergio Rapu. I mean, who am I? Mm. You know, I'm not in a, in a way to show, hey, I am the one that know, hey. Because those folks really need it, because they're professor, they need to show that they know and they, they justify their grants, their money from universities, so on. That's why I understand. But uh, I have uh, my grandchildren <laughs> and my children say, hey, dad, please publish. <laughs> it's because the Occidental world needs that. If you don't publish, you perish. So Sergio doesn't want anything to do with that publish or perish system even if that means being sidelined. He told me that he publishes and gives lectures for his own joy and for passing on what he knows to the next generation. As for his son, Matau, well, he's taking a different approach. Matau got into filmmaking in college when he realized that the media has the power to influence people and what they believe. Which eventually evolved to why are all these non-Rapa Nui people telling stories about my island, and why am I not telling stories about my island? Matau doesn't want to be sidelined, but in order to tell stories about his island, Matau had to get his foot in the door of the filmmaking industry. That Nova documentary that made Terry and Carl famous for The Walking Theory, Matau was an associate producer on that. It was his first nationally broadcast film. He didn't have much of a say on the production decisions, but he learned the process for making television. It set a foundation for his future work, including his latest film called Eating Up Easter. The film features all Rapa Nui people speaking in their own voices. We all need to keep sort of growing in, in our career paths. And, and oftentimes, like, the hurdles that are set in front of Native people to be able to do that, mm-hmm. um, are huge. And I tell people, I'm like, hey, we are the little fish. Rapa Nui is tiny. Like, we don't have the power in academia or museology or any of that to be able to just bite back and say no. In order for us to be able to survive, we need to be able to swim with the big fish and not... um, not be fearful that we will get chomped. As for science, well, science is getting more inclusive. And one way that's happening 
is that more Rapanui people are entering the field of archaeology, where they can contribute their perspectives and voices to the story. That's actually in part because of Sergio. He's opened a high school on the island, and he lectures and mentors the students about archaeology and the history of the island. And he gets them scholarships to go to college abroad. Several of those kids are already thinking to be archaeologists. That is my book. That is my publicity. But in the end, as much as science evolves and becomes more inclusive, it's still got its own priorities. They're often not the same priorities that Sergio has. I remember what he told me was the first thing he did when he discovered the almond-shaped eyes of the Moai. His team rushed into town. They run to the town to bring the whole town up. They make such a big food. <laughs> We're all there, 500 people eating to celebrate the discovery of the eyes of the statues. His first impulse was not to turn to the outside world. His first impulse was to turn back to his community, like the Moai, the living faces of his ancestors, looking inward towards the island, not away from it. And I was symbolically saying, we have waken up our ancestor. Our past is present. If you're interested in Matao's documentary film work, check out his latest film, Eating Up Easter. In the film, Matao features his father, Sergio, and three other islanders who, quote, in their own voices, reveal the reality of modern life and the actions they are taking to preserve their culture and environment amidst rapid development. Learn more about it at eatingupeaster.com. This episode of Outside In was produced by me, Felix Poon, and edited by Taylor Quimby, with additional editing support from Justine Paradise, Jessica Hunt, Rebecca Lavoy, and Erica Janik. Special thanks to Effie Kong, and thanks to Daniela Ali for her Spanish and Rapa Nui voiceovers. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.